Well, good morning to everybody out here on the lot and, of course, our friends at home. Good morning to you online. And, yes, we are Redemption Church. And one of the things about Redemption Church that is really cool is that it is a scrappy group of people, right? We will do whatever we need to do to get the mission of Jesus accomplished in our particular sphere of influence. And that brings me to the said backpack that is up here. So how many of you remember the backpack in history? I'm curious how many people go, I know this object. So some of you do, some of you do not. So uh, it will be 10 years ago this October that Redemption was born as a church. And the very first Sunday we met as a church, I brought up this very backpack. And it was symbolic of kind of what the spirit of the church was going to be and what we were going to be doing as a church, right? And so each thing was symbolic. The rope ties us together. The Bible's the thing that guides us. And we're just traveling and moving as we go. And we're going to face all of the challenges that we do, but we're going to do it with just this kind of limber, quick-moving kind of spirit, right? That was the whole thing behind it. Because we were a church that didn't have a building. We were a church that didn't have anything. But we knew we would be a church for the good of the city. And in that, we knew that we would be reliant on the city for our well-being. Just as much as we wanted to sow goodness into the culture for the culture's well-being, we knew that we were going to depend on bars and restaurants and people opening their homes and everything else to make Redemption Church Redemption Church. Well... As things have gone, now going into year 10, we're like, how are we going to keep navigating this? Because we've been in contact with the school, and they're planning at this point to talk about whether outside groups can come in in October. So we can't even necessarily know what is going to happen until at least that period of time. So we're like, what are we going to do? Because we're only meeting out here till the end of September, and we've got to figure out something. So we got creative, and we prayed, and we thought, and we worked things through, and we realized that we could do this in a really weird way. So what that means is we'll still be online on Sunday mornings, but also on Sunday mornings, our children are going to continue to meet in the hub, and the adults are going to meet at the sports bar. Because we're scrappy like that, all right? So... So as all the options were like, we could do a Saturday night. Some of the churches here in town were more than happy to open up their buildings for us to do a Saturday night service. We thought about that. We're like, man, in the end, no, we got we to figure out if we can protect Sunday morning. So starting October 3rd, which will be the very 10th anniversary of Redemption Church, when we were flushed out into the city, we will be meeting in a bar. So it will be fantastic. It's really cool, actually. I mean, you can clap for that. I think it's cool. I think it's cool. Is there a little bit of weird noise coming out of this system right now? I feel like I'm all over the map, so Trent's going to jump in that too. I feel like I'm inside a tin can telling you a cool thing right now. So maybe they'll get that squared up in here in just a second. But um, anyway, I'm excited about that. And so, uh, you know, again, we'll, we'll be sharing more about that in coming weeks as far as what the details are. We, we might adjust the time a little bit. Uh, but the owners of the sports bar were like, yeah, that sounds great. That's awesome. Let's do it. So uh, it's really kind of a cool thing all the way around. So looking forward to that. It's going to be great. But I'm also looking forward to the month of September because like Trent said, we are looking at a small book of the Bible titled Bittersweet, or as you find it in your Bible, the book of Ruth. And uh, this is honestly one of the best stories in the Bible. Uh, It's one of those ones that I think once you really begin to unpack it, you'll find there's a lot in there that is probably very pertinent for today and certainly for our own messy lives at times. And so we're going to be going through that over the next four weeks. And so right now I'm going to go ahead and pray, get us sort of set up for the morning, and we're going to get right to business with that. So let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, I thank you for the fact that, you know what? 
uh, you are with your church. I mean, so often we talk about the fact that you're the senior pastor of Redemption Church. It lives or dies by your prerogative and what you desire to do. And over the last 10 years, you have met our needs time and again. And as we're looking to build a building, but don't have a building right now, and we're trying to figure out what to do. You're like, hey, I'll pave a way. Let's use a bar and your building and we can continue to do church in a normative kind of way. And so I thank you for that. I thank you that the city opens itself to us as we seek to bring good to the city. And so I pray that we will use this time uh, in, a, in a way that is um, dependent on you. Will we use this time in a way that is grateful for our community and that we will represent you well in our community as our community is opening itself up to us. And so again, I thank you for that uh, opportunity. I thank you for the grace you show us. And I thank you for the opportunity we have today to look at this ancient story with modern eyes. I pray that you give us the wisdom and heart to discern it. So Jesus, we thank you and we praise you in your good and perfect name. Amen. So this week I was reading a story um, uh, and the story was describing the backdrop of where the story was kind of occurring. And so it started off by saying this, the global stage was dominated by political instability, penetrated national borders, gender inequality, racial disparity, uh, international tensions, economic crisis, injustice, violence, wars, and natural disasters. I mean, it was just this overwhelming sense of detail around the story that I was reading. Now, when you hear that, you might think, wow, that's got to be Afghanistan, or maybe it's Syria, or perhaps it's somebody's perspective on the U.S.-Mexico border. Like, you're thinking all of those kinds of things, but actually, it was an introduction to the story of Ruth in the Old Testament. And I think that's really helpful for us because I think so often we can look at the Bible and be like, oh, those are old stories about dead people and they don't matter for today. But when you kind of put that in a context like that, you realize that the very problems our world is facing today, the very challenges that we run up against, the very things we see in the news are the stuff of this Old Testament story. And so for us collectively and individually, this story still matters. It still has something to teach us. And so I'm hoping over the next four weeks, as we look at the bittersweetness of this story, we will figure out how we graft in its message, how we begin to own some of the things that it displays, and that we will remember that we are all part of a bigger story. And sometimes we only see that much of our story. And from that, we can conclude a lot because we see just this much. But, but oftentimes, God's like, man, I'm not bringing you into the whole thing right now. You're going to have to go along for the ride. That is the book of Ruth. Now, with that said, I want to be really, really clear about this. Ruth is not a love story. There is love in the book of Ruth, but it's not a love story. And it's not a romantic comedy, and it's not some princess fairy tale where the, the lowly girl meets the prince guy, and they get married, and it's happily ever after. That's not the story of Ruth at all. In fact, if anything, you have to understand that it is a story of a refugee family in such deep hardship, they're driven below the poverty line, and they're struggling for their survival. That's your story. So when you watch the news and you see refugees from Syria or from Afghanistan or wherever, you need to start thinking about the story of Ruth. You got to think about the characters of this story because that is their plight. And in particular, it's two women who in the aftermath of a complete meltdown of life, they're trying to figure out how do I do life and how do I even understand God in the context 
of a life that does not seem fair and a God who does not seem to be fair. See, that's the setting we are in. In fact, if anything, here's a simple way to remember the book of Ruth. It is a female version of the book of Job. The character Naomi is your lady Job in this story. And if you lock that in, you're going to understand then the whole premise of the book and where it's trying to take us. So if you are taking notes in your app, I want to begin at the very beginning, Ruth chapter one. We're just going to hit a chapter a week, so we're blazing in a certain way, but I think we can put it all together. But it starts in Ruth 1.1, and the first point in your notes is this, when crisis changes everything. Because crisis will, right? You've probably gone through some deep crisis in your life, and it just rattles your world. Well, it starts in verse one. It says, in the days when the judges ruled Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem, oh, we know that place, in Judah, left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and his two sons with him. Now, when we read this with modern eyes, it probably doesn't mean a lot to us. We're like, okay, places and people and things and okay, moving on. What's next? Where's the story get hot? Well, that opener is a shocking opener at a lot of levels for ancient readers. The first thing you want to notice is it says it's during the time of the judges. So you go back to the beginning of your Bible and you see there's the first five books, the law, and then there's Joshua and then there's Judges. And if you read Judges tonight when you go home, you will need an antidepressant by the time you're done. It's a terrible time. It is a brutal, sex-filled, broken time. It is violent upon top of violent. It is degrading at so many levels because what's going on is Israel enters into their promised homeland and then they just slowly begin to decay and melt down. They live under the judges, but some of them are good and some of them are bad and even the good ones don't seem great. And as the book goes on, it just gets darker and darker and darker. It's the time of the judges. And so there's violence and abuse. There's just instability in culture. So imagine if you had that kind of social mess and then thrust upon it is a famine. Now, again, I don't think we can appreciate the magnitude of a famine because for us, we have refrigerators full of food and we can just make a Costco run. And even when we have a pandemic, we make a run on toilet paper and bread. We don't even have sanity. Right? So we don't understand real tragic suffering in the context of a famine where you're literally watching your babies die. You're literally watching your teenagers try to sweat it out to scrape up just enough to maybe barely put a morsel in the mouth of the family. That's a famine. And when you have a famine on top of an already relatively unjust culture like under the judges, man, that's going to be more crime. It's going to be more violence. It's going to be more chaos. And it seems to be so bad that this family says, you know what? We're moving to Moab. That's how bad it is. And by the way, not Moab, Utah, all right? Moab, Jordan, right? Back out there in the desert. And you have to understand again, for the original reader, they would see this and like, wow, those people are desperate. Because if you want to understand the story of Moab, you have to understand this family background, this fight that went on. So Abraham and Lot, they were hanging together. There was a bit of a divide. Abraham goes that way, Lot goes that way. And in a drunken binger one night, his daughters decide that they would procreate with dad. And from that, Moab is born. So the way an Israelite looked at Moab is not just you're our religious enemy, you're our political enemy, but you're just inbreeds. You're, you're dirty people. That's the way they saw Moab. 
So when you put all of this together, you go, it is so dire and desperate. You will be a poor refugee, crosses the border into a foreign land that will hate you, is nothing like you, and you're going to try to scrap it out there. If you try to modernize this context, it would be like it got so bad in the United States and your family was so teetering on the brink of starvation, you pack them up and you move them to Kabul because it's safer there than it would be here. You would rather face the Taliban than face the problems here. That's the magnitude of the move this family decides to make. So you're desperate, right? That's the plight of the refugee. Desperate, fighting for survival. But starvation is a pretty compelling thing, right? I mean, if you're starving to death, your family's dying, you're going to go, right? So Moab has food, and they, they kind of scooby-doo to Moab. Verse 2, the man who was doing this whole thing, leading this charge, was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi, and their two sons were Malon and Kilion. Now, in Ruth, names mean things. Right? They have like deeper intention behind them. We're getting a sense of their character in the descriptors of the names. And so Elimelech, his name means my God is king. But here's the problem. In Israel, under the time of the judges, they all identified God was king. There was no king in Israel up to that point. God was the king, and the judges were then called by God to lead through the lands and keep justice in place. Justice had fallen apart underneath the judges, obviously. But in this, when Elimelech moves, he's no longer under the king of Israel. God is no longer his king. He's under the king of Moab now. So he makes a decision that is selling out his namesake. But at top of that, it's bad enough. But then when we read further, we find out that this guy is not going to win any Father of the Year awards. Because a lot of times when families name their kids, they give them names that they want to be seen as noble or intriguing or strong or reflective of something positive. And so our oldest daughter is named Honor. Because we wanted to give her this name of kind of like valor and strength. And, and there was a family here in our church that just had a little boy. They named him Maverick. I'm like, that is so cool. I want a Maverick, right? So you typically want to give a name that's like inspiring to your kids. Well, basically, Elimelech has these two sons, and he names one sick, and the other puny and doomed. Like, thanks, Dad. That's awesome. Malon literally means critically ill, and Kilion means terminally ill. So sicko, doomed, follow me. That's this dad right here. So dad has a pretty low expectation of the boys at this point. So you're refugees and you got rotten names and you're in a place that doesn't like you or wants you. But there is one shining spot in this family and her name is Naomi. Naomi means pleasant or sweet. She's the salve to the soul of the family. She's the one that's the glue that anchors them, that everybody can look to in tough times and say, she's here for us. She's the one that reminds us that life is worth living. That was sort of the role of Naomi in this whole context. That is until the second thing, when life falls apart. That's point two. It's easy to be pleasant and sweet when life is pleasant and sweet, but when life falls apart, that's the real test. So in verse 3, it says, Then Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. Now, I want you to think this through again. I think it's too easy for us to read this like, oh, it's a story. I want you to, to convert this to real living. She is not a second-class citizen in Moab. She's like a fourth-class citizen. 
Think about it. She's a female, which in that culture, you were property. You weren't an individual. You were the property of somebody else. Now she's dislodged from her owner, in essence, when her husband dies. So she's a female, which is property. She's a refugee. She's single. She's poor. And she's trying to raise two kids that are sick. And there is no like healthcare system that's easily available for her in Moab, right? The whole thing is just a mess. What that's going to mean, and this is where you have to start to understand something about Naomi and her conditions, it's going to drive her, you ready, to break some of the rules. It's going to drive her to a place where she has to get really creative just to survive. And that's no different than the plight of the refugee. Sometimes we look at refugees and we go, well, why are they trying to break the rules? And why are they trying to force their way in? And they're like, because our kids are dying. What else would you have me do? Right? Desperate times call for desperate measures, and Naomi is going to be a desperate woman. And you see it in verse 4, the desperation, the level she's willing to go to just to survive and to try to keep her boys alive and try to keep things moving. It says the two sons, they married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah, and the other a woman named Ruth. Now, in saying this, you've got to understand a couple of things are going on here. One is in these boys marrying these girls, they've instantly violated God's Old Testament law. Because God was very clear, you don't marry a Moabite. You don't intermarry with them, you don't intermingle with them, you don't want to be like them, because again, they're inbreds and they came from craziness. So for Ruth to be like, you know what, I'm so desperate, I'm gonna let my boys marry Moabite girls, those types of girls, was a massive step of just breaking the rules. She's like, I don't know how else we're gonna do it, so this is the way we're gonna do it, right? Because here's the thing, the, the spirit of this whole thing, the way it works, is that uh, a, a Jewish or Israelite male marries a female, and then hopefully from that they have a son, because that's what they all wanted was sons, and the son then carries on the family name. But if the family name comes from Elimelech, which is, my God is king, but you bestow that on Moabite babies, it is considered to be like this just abomination concept. But you know what? She's a single mom with no money, refugee in a foreign land, fighting to keep her life going. So she's like, okay, this is what it's going to be. We're going to do it. But the other thing about this is it reveals just how kind of pathetic then the whole scene is. And the reason I say that is because as much as it was difficult for Naomi to do this, think about Orpah and Ruth for a minute. Right? Because again, like I said, in that culture, uh, before a woman is married off, the father basically owned the daughters as a type of property. And so here is this Moabite father or fathers. We don't know if they were sisters or just knew each other, or two different dads. We don't know any of that. But, but here are these two women who are owned by their fathers. And then their fathers are like, man, I got to do something with my daughters. How about I sell them to some poor refugees with no headship male in the home anymore? And uh, I'll get pennies on the dollar for them. Because he, he must have seen these girls, these fathers looked at these girls and they must have seen such little worth there. They said, sure, I'll pawn you off to some poor people from another place, why not? So when you just put your emotions behind this for a minute, you just dig into it. You just think about the sense of rejection Ruth and Orpah could feel. This is a betrayal. We didn't even get married off to our own people. You dumped us off on people who frankly don't like us. And worse than that, you dumped us off on people where one is sick and one is dying. It's like, thank you. I get to marry Doc Holliday. Woohoo! Right? It's painful. It's tragic. Now, maybe part of this was driven by the fact that Orpah means stiff necked. So the dad's like, got to get rid of that. I don't know. Could be. 
And I'm sure whichever guy married her, because it doesn't say who was married to who in this whole thing, but whichever one got her was like, jeez, can we just can we just starve to death now and not have a wife? I mean, I'm sure it might have been hard, right? But the other son, he got the deal of the century because he ended up marrying a woman whose name is refreshing. Ruth means refreshing. So you have this whole composite that's unfolding, right? And yet the potential for new beginnings never materializes in the story. Like you'd think like, oh no, this is where it comes together, right? It's like they got some, some new wives and husbands together and the family can grow and expand. Well, this is in verse four. Well, about 10 years later, both Malon and Kilion lived up to their names and they died, right? And this left Naomi alone with her two sons, without her two sons rather, or her husband. Now, some versions will reflect this, some versions won't, but I'm using the New Living Translation for this, and it says, this left Naomi alone. In the original Hebrew, it actually says, this left the woman alone. And, and that's intentional, because what it's trying to communicate is that with the death of all of her men, she now has no purpose, no meaning. She's erased. Because in their culture, the purpose of a, a female was to basically marry and produce sons to carry on the male name. And so for her to suddenly not have a husband, not have sons, and not have grandsons, it's just she's, she's a zero, right? That, that's just the way patriarchal societies work. So she has no value. Her future, realistically, is going to be exploitation in some facet or form. And everything's just been pulled away from her. I mean, just think about how bewildering it would be. I mean, in our society, if a woman loses her husband and her kids, it's tragic, it's gut-wrenching, but they can still come back from that with a level of future. In this society, that's not the way it typically works. In this society, it was just like, yep, you're nothing anymore. It's all gone. She's Job. Her life's imploded. But then she hears that when she's in Moab, in fact, that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab and return to her homeland. Now, quick side note really quick. One of the things that's cool about the book of Ruth is that you never see God speak. There is never a voice from the heavens that says, Naomi, do this, Ruth, do that. In fact, only twice is God referred to in any active agency, and it's at the beginning and at the end. So in other words, God is silent in this book. He's present, but he's silent. And much like our lives, you know, where we only see this much, and then God is silent but present, we don't know fully how to navigate or what to do, and maybe what we should or shouldn't do, and we sometimes we don't know how to pray or to act. I mean, all of that is going to be the same tension in this story. The characters are going to wrestle with discerning God's will for their lives, just like we wrestle. I love the brutal honesty of all of that. It's just so authentic. And so it's not that God said, Naomi, I've come back to Bethlehem. It's awesome. Go back to the house of bread. No, she's just heard by word of mouth. Like, oh, I guess it's good back home, right? And so she says, well, if God's blessed them there, but I'm under a curse here, it's better to at least go there and try to see if something could happen. So she decides she wants to go. So it says in verse seven with her two daughters, our daughters-in-law, she set out from that place where she'd been living and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. So this is about a 50 mile journey. It's rugged terrain. So it was going to take them about seven to 10 days. And again, they're traveling without male escort. So in that world, the risk of attack, of uh, assault, of kidnapping, 
high. Like you're risking yourself just traveling around in times like this. It says, but on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-laws, go back to your mother's homes and may the Lord reward you for your kindness, your hesed, just as you did for me and your husbands. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Again, security, you see what this is really all about. Then she kissed them goodbye and they all broke down and wept. Now, I can't help but think about how trauma binds people together, right? If you've ever gone through something with others, you realize it causes you to kind of huddle. And so that's what's happened with these women. They've all suffered and they're suffering together. And in this, I'm sure Naomi gets a great deal of peace, right? Because she's like, I'm with these other two. They understand me. I understand them. We've seen the same tragic things. But here's the other thing Naomi knows. And this is why she's trying to have them maybe go back home. She knows that these girls are not going to be well-received in Bethlehem right? Because they're Moabites. They're going to be exploited. They're probably going to be used. They're going to be seen as some kind of chattel for sexual exploitation or whatever else. They're just not going to be like, oh, we love the Moabites here. It's not a healthy season. Again, if you just go back and read Judges, you'll see some of the crazy stuff that happens to women in that book. And you know that Naomi knows this is just going to be a, a nutty place. They will not show you hesed like you've shown me hesed. That word hesed, kindness, means loyalty, fierce commitment, right? This loving commitment to another person. She's like, you've been that to me, but I'm not sure they will be that to you. And so she wants them to go. But I love the girls because it reminds me like movies where it's like a group of women that are taking on the world. They wipe away their tears like, no, we're a family. We're staying together no matter what, Naomi. That's kind of what they do here. They said, no, we want to go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, why should you go with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters, return to your parents' home for I am too old to marry again. And even if it were possible that I could get married tonight and bear sons, what then? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, she says, of course not. You don't want to do this, my daughters. Now, that sounds weird, right? But here's the thing. Again, going back to understanding their culture, this is the idea of what's called the Leverite marriage. We're going to see three obscure laws exercised in the book of Ruth. This is the first of the three. And the Levite marriage out of Deuteronomy 25 is really simple. If you had a guy that married a girl, and then the guy died before they had a son, the brother of the guy would step in and marry the girl in the hopes of them together having a son to carry on the brother's name. Hopefully you caught all that. That's the Levite marriage. Now, the brother that steps in to marry the girl, he might already be married. So you become wife number two or wife number three or wife number four because it's just how the, wor the world worked back then. And from that, hopefully there is a son that perpetuates the name. And so Naomi's thinking about the Levite marriage and she's saying, okay, based on this concept of commitment, do you really expect me to get married and have babies because newsflash, I'm postpartum and post everything, this is done. You know, like I'm out, I'm over it. I'm not gonna have kids. It's, we're beyond all of those things. So that's not gonna happen. And then on top of it, she's like, and do you really wanna help me raise your future husbands? Ooh, who's sticking around for that, right? And, and then on top of the fact that she just knows these are foreign girls, going into her homeland. You think there's racism issues today. There was racist issues back then. They're not going to be welcomed or accepted. So she says, go home. Try to find yourself some semblance of life. That's probably her first motivation. Her second motivation, though, is perhaps deeper. And it's the third point in your notes. 
It's when bitterness becomes you. When bitterness becomes you. She she says here, she says, things are far more bitter for me than for you because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. And again, they wept together. I am so appreciative of this little statement because what she's saying is, I'm poison. I'm a bad omen. You do not want to hitch your wagon to me at all. And the reason she says is because in her thinking, she's surveying her life and she says, God himself has decided to raise his fist and beat me. You don't want to be near that. That's her perspective. Her perspective is not God has abandoned me. Her perspective is no, he's very present and he's abusing me, right? So again, I'm a bad well to draw water from. That's the way she's trying to put this together. And I understand she's lost her husband. She's lost her sons. She has a sense of having lost God's favor. She's not just angry or grieving or confused. She tells us, I'm bitter. I'm just flat out bitter. This is a joke. This is so radically unfair. Now, here's why I really appreciate this. I appreciate it because what the Bible is doing right now is giving us permission to wrestle with the exact same feelings. I think sometimes we feel like, no, if I'm honest with how I'm really struggling with the thing, that somehow God will look down at me like, oh, come on, get over it. No, God's like, no, you're allowed to wrestle. I don't give you the whole story. I don't tell you every detail. From that, we have space to wrestle. We have space to struggle. We have space to question. This is her where's God when I'm suffering moment. And her only simple walk away is basically, you know what? God's just got it in for me. And so she's looking at her daughters and she's trying to kind of do like a white fang thing. Like, go away. I don't want you anymore. Go away. You know, that's what she's doing. It's it's not going to be good for you to stick with me. And I love you too much to drag you in to my problems. Well, it seems that Orpah here says, okay, good enough for me. Right? It was a drag being married to a sick husband. I don't want to be running around with a bitter old lady anymore, so I'm out. So it says, Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. And that word clung, you can circle it because the first time you ever see it in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 2 when it talks about a husband and a wife cleaving to one another, clinging to one another. It's to bond or cement. Like, like Ruth is just like, I'm all in on this. Orpah's like, I'm out. I'm going to go try to find a safer life someplace. What I love about this is in the moment of deep despair and dread, refreshing Ruth lives up to her name, right? There on a dusty road up in the hills, halfway between nowhere and nowhere else. She's, she's refreshing. So fantastic. But Naomi's not exactly thrilled. So she says, look, and I think it's look like, listen, lady, Like, just stop for a minute, Ruth. Give it a rest. Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same, right? Again, she's just looking at things going, God's perplexing, I'm perplexed. He seems spiteful, I'm really bitter. Just cut your losses. Go create a life for yourself. But Ruth replied in verse 16, don't ask me to leave you or to turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. That God that you said has brought his fist against you, I'll take him. 
wherever you die, I will die there and I will be buried as well. May the Lord punish me severely if I do not allow anything but death to separate us. Now you could look at this and say, oh, this is just like a Thelma and Louise ride or die moment. But it's more deep than that for Ruth. Because as she does this, it's literally probably a a physical pledge or a gesture is made in that last part. I'm pledging myself. I'm bowing my knee. I'm giving myself to you. And in doing that, she's saying, I'm cutting off my family. I'm cutting off my culture. I'm cutting off my religion, my gods, my way of life, my understanding of everything. I know I'm risking abuse or death or whatever or the smiting of God, but I'm sticking with you. See, that is radical service. I can't help but look at Ruth and then think about us as followers of Jesus and be like, yeah, we could learn from that. Radical service to others, even at the cost of our own losses. See, it's like Ruth is going all in with a pair of sevens. It's terrible odds, right? Just all the chips are in. I've got two sevens right here in my deck, right? I'm rolling with a bitter old lady who God is trying to abuse in her mind. Like, that's got some craziness to it. But she's refreshing amidst the decay. So this is in verse 18. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. I always picture Lily Tomlin right now with that one. Just like, you know, like, just, I'm disgusted by this. I'm just walking now. I'm not even going to talk to you about it. So it says in verse 19, the two of them continued on their journey. And when they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their arrival. Is it really Naomi? The women asked. And so the story comes full circle in the first chapter. Started in Bethlehem, went to Moab, decade plus there, everything falls apart, and now they're coming home. But it's not quite home at this point. Because she's coming home, minus the boys. And she's coming home, minus any sense of identity or purpose. And she's coming home, minus even the favor of God. There's no joy as she sets foot into town. In fact, this is why I think the women say, is this really Naomi? I don't think that they're struggling with uncertainty. I think it's surprise. I think they're looking at this woman and they're like, wow, life has been hard on her. She is internally and externally just worn out, wiped out, broken down, winded in every way. This is not the woman that we all saw as sweet and as pleasant. Something's happened. And she says in verse 20, you're right. Don't call me Naomi. Don't call me sweet. Instead, call me Mara. Call me bitter. For the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Uh, Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has set such tragedy upon me? So this sweet Lady Job now is so bitter. She literally articulates herself as the waters in the desert when Israel was coming out of Egypt. Remember when they drank bitter waters? She says, I'm those bitter waters now. I, I'm, I'm, I'm so run down. Just redefine me. I'm not pleasant anymore. That's gone. That's dead. And it's funny because you can see in the lives of people when they go through great trauma and tragedy and hardship, that sweetness can go away. And it just gets replaced by bitterness. And that's, that's her space. And then she, again, brings God into the equation of her space. And she uses two metaphors, Hebrew language that help us to understand the metaphors better. They're a little tougher for us to, to get in some ways, but one's a legal metaphor and the other's more of a personal metaphor. And so when she says, God has caused me to suffer, what she's saying is, I, I thought he was my defense attorney 
until he turned on me and testified against me in court. That's what that idea of caused me to suffer means. She's like, I thought he was looking out for me, but he wasn't looking out for me. And then the other metaphor is brought tragedy. What she's kind of saying is, I thought I was God's daughter until he raised his hand against me. And so that's her space. That's just the way she's trying to process all of this out. And so she's literally defined herself by her conditions. Don't call me sweet. I'm bitter. I'm not full. I'm empty. She's the victim of life circumstances and she's holding God accountable for the problem. Again, much like Job. But here's the difference between Job and Naomi. Job, when he went through all of his hardship, was stepping back and saying, where's the justice of God in all of this? Which is pretty fair. Naomi's stepping back and she's saying, where is the love of God in all of this? And again, I, I appreciate this because it's so authentic to me, right? It's not nice and tidy. Like we want all the characters of the Bible to play by the nice and tidy rules. This is not a character that's played by nice and tidy rules. And I love that because that seems like more like real life to me, right? Because maybe you've been in that space or maybe you're in that space right now where you're like wrestling with stuff in life and you're wrestling with God and you're like, God, how are you fair? How is this right? Do you really love me? Do you love any of us? Are you just letting us run around like a bunch of crazy beings just destroying everything in our path? Are you gonna intervene at any time? What's the deal, God? How is this good? How is this lovely? How is this you blessing the nations, all the messes in our world? Like that is an authentic thing. And again, what I love about Ruth is it gives you the permission to have those feelings. And what I love about this is understanding that, you know what? God is not going to step in and hit you with a bolt of lightning for struggling with that. I think sometimes we feel that way. Like, no, if I really vent my feelings and my thoughts, God's gonna come after me. You know what doesn't happen in the next verse? It doesn't say, and God smote her on the spot. It doesn't say that, right? And equally, you know what else doesn't happen? God doesn't come rushing into the scene and saying, no, no, Naomi, you don't understand. You're, you're missing the point. I'm there with you. I'm not smiting you. I'm not hurting you. He doesn't jump in either. What you're going to see throughout the story is that God is going to use relationship and people and time and circumstance, subtlety to bring healing to the story. And I think that's so often the case with us as well. When we go through things in life and we're like, God, where are you? God's like, I'm present. I'm quiet right now, but I'm working this thing out. And it might take a while and I'm going to use a lot of different things to do that but you'll grow through that as well. And so there's healing that will come in the story, but right now all you see is the bitterness. But the hint of the healing is in the final verse. Verse 22, so Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by her daughter-in-law Ruth, the young Moabite woman, and they arrived in Bethlehem in late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. See, that might not mean much to us, but again, go back to the beginning. It was famine, and it was winter. But now spring is breaking in. Life is coming up through the ground and there's hope in the region. And if there's hope for the region, hopefully there is also a very unique hope for these two companions. Let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, I thank you for your grace toward us. I thank you for painful stories that actually teach us a lot about our own stories that sometimes are very painful as well. And so, Jesus, we are looking to you. We need you. We ask you to guide us. We ask you to help us with sometimes those moments where we are 
angry, fatigued, frustrated, bitter at others, at you, at life circumstances, whatever it is. And we ask that you would teach us how to navigate those things well in your name for your glory and for our own health, good, and growth. And so Jesus, we thank you for all of your grace and your good name. Amen.